It's the Carson McKellar Center's weekly Weave Me. This week's episode is the third and final in a series based on an interview we conducted with McKellar scholar Carlos Dews on June 19th of 2020. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Fantastic. Well, um, it reminds me also of what I know of your story with Carson McCullers is that when you were at the University of Texas and you went to the Ransom Center and you discovered the unfinished uh, autobiography, the manuscript, uh, and that's, you set on a, out on a 10-year uh, odyssey, <laughs> I guess you'd call it, um, to edit that and to, to see it to publication. Um, but I wanted to ask you, I also uh, was, was reading uh, in your own bio uh, that it was a friend of yours at UT who recommended to you that you read Carson McCullers. And obviously, uh, I mean, it, it's become a big part of your working life. Uh, you know, that, that was a momentous, uh, you know, thing to happen to you in your life mm-hmm. that you discovered Carson McCullers, obviously. So uh, I wanted to ask you, what was it about uh, when you first read McCullers back, uh, I guess you were an undergraduate, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. At UT. What was it that... Uh... Well, I'll, I'll forever be grateful uh, to this friend. His name is Kenneth Dimsky. He's a, a psychologist and now lives in London. Um, and he was in graduate school at the University of Texas, and I was an undergrad um, studying music at the time uh, at the University of Texas. And he saw the sort of struggles that I was facing, distancing myself from sort of my racist and homophobic family back in East Texas and trying to find my own way, dealing with my own sexuality and dealing with sort of finding my uh, own path um, in my you know, late teens and early 20s there at the University of Texas. And he simply asked me one day, have you read uh, any Carson McCullers? And I said, well, who is he? Because like so many people first hearing Carson's name, I thought uh, Carson was a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said, well, first of all, Carson is a woman. And he told me briefly about her, said she's from Georgia and she's a novelist. uh, um, And uh, so he photocopied uh, selected pages from a number of her novels just to give me a flavor of, of her work. And I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what my response was when I started reading those uh, Xerox pages. And it was, and I think I even described it to someone at the time, that that she had sort of read my mind in anticipation. Like, you know, she's writing in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but she knew exactly what I was struggling, struggling with, perhaps because, you know, it's the same Southern atmosphere essentially Mm -hmm. East Texas and and Georgia have uh, very much in common. And there was this sense of recognition that someone had put into words long before I was even born, because I was uh, uh, only four years old when when, uh, Carson died, that there was this person who was writing long before I was born who was struggling with these same issues, feeling completely out of place in the environment they were growing up, longing to get away, longing to find my we of me, uh, as she writes about in the the member of the wedding. Um, And so it was this sense of recognition that there was somebody else out there who had struggled with the same things in a very similar kind of place and had been able to turn that into this sort of um, uh, creative work as a way of uh, sort of saving herself. Uh, I was trying to do it at the time via music. It was my way out. I was going to be a professional classical musician and uh, was well on my way 
to, to being so. And then a medical problem, another parallel I had with Carson, yeah. a medical problem prevented me from being able to do that. And so I switched from musical studies to uh, literary studies and psychology uh, instead, which was another sort of anticipation by Carson of my life as well, having to turn yeah. from a musical pursuit to a literary uh, uh, pursuit as well. So it was, much a, it was very much of identification. And it was, you know, uh, um, not to put you know, to find a point on it, it was my sort of recognition of a we of me, just like she had, uh, that she depicts uh, 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 Frankie Adams having in The Member mm -hmm. of the Wedding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I asked you um, last week when we were setting up this interview uh, to select a passage from a colors that you would like to read, a favorite passage, and you got right back to me <laughs> with this passage from uh, Clock Without Hands. So uh, why, I wanted you to read that passage, but first, uh, why this passage? I mean, what was it? You, you obviously knew instantly what you wanted to read, so how did yeah, I um, The first volume of McCullough's work that was published by the Library of America was slated to come out uh, at the end of August or the beginning of September in 2001. And we had a big event planned uh, at the 92nd Street Y uh, to uh, have a reading from her work. Uh, and it was supposed to happen around September 11th. And obviously when the, the terrorist attacks of September 11th started, happened, uh, it was postponed. And I think we ended up having it in November. Uh, and because of what had just happened in New York, I looked through her work to see if there was anything that might sort of ring true or ring relevant to that period right after mm -hmm. uh, the terrorist attacks. And I found this passage um, toward the end of Clock Without Hands, and it really has stuck with me as, I think, one of the most beautiful passages in McCardell's work that very few people know and very few people uh, uh, would be familiar with. So when people ask me, do you have a passage to read? I don't think twice because it's the passage. I think I've only ever been recorded uh, reading it once before. So it's not like yeah. your uh, podcast is going to have lots of competition with me having read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's really powerful. And it's. I think it's very relevant. We were talking today about the black, uh, talking earlier about Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on regarding race, not only in, in the U.S., but around the world at the moment. And there's something about empathy in this passage that I think makes it even relevant today, in addition to having been relevant uh, just after September 11th. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, great. So uh, you want to go ahead and read it then? Sure. Okay. This is very near the end of, uh, of the novel, Clock Without Hands. Looking downward from an altitude of 2,000 feet, the earth assumes order. A town, even Milan, is symmetrical, exact as a small gray honeycomb complete. The surrounding terrain seems designed by a law more just and mathematical than the laws of property and bigotry. A dark parallelogram of pine woods, square fields, rectangles of sward, on this cloudless day, the sky on all sides and above the plain is a blind monotone of blue, impenetrable to the eye and the imagination. But down below, the earth is round. The earth is finite. From this height, you do not see man and the details of his humiliation. The earth from a great distance is perfect and whole. But this is an order foreign to the heart. And to love the earth, you must come closer. Gliding downward, low over the town and countryside, 
the whole breaks up into a multiplicity of impressions. The town is much the same in all its seasons, but the land changes. In early spring, the fields here are like patches of worn gray corduroy, each one alike. Now you could begin to tell the crops apart, the gray-green of cotton, the dense and spidery tobacco land, the burning green of corn. As you circle inward, the town itself becomes crazy and complex. You see the secret corners of all the sad backyards, gray fences, factories, the flat main street. From the air, men are shrunken and they have an automatic look like wound up dolls. They seem to move mechanically among haphazard miseries. You do not see their eyes. And finally, this is intolerable. The whole earth from a great distance means less than one long look into a pair of human eyes, even the eyes of the enemy. Yeah, great. Yeah, I have to say, Carlos, that, um, you know, I, of course, I'd read uh, Clock Without Hands, but you're uh, drawing my attention back to that passage. Uh, I immediately went, wow, it's, it is brilliant. I mean, it really is. It's another stroke of genius. You know? Yeah, it's one of those moments in her work where, once again, she's, she's sort of moving out of herself, taking a sort of global view, and then realizing that that's missing humanity, and that even the enemy, she says, the humanity that one can share, even with one's enemy, is more important than the world. Yeah, that's great. That's terrific. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, well, we could yeah. use it. I just finished writing a really long um, review of Jen Chaplin's uh, My Autobiography of My Autobiography of Carson McCullers mm-hmm. for the literary journal Biography, which is published at the University of Hawaii which is sort of the journal for consideration of the genre of biography and autobiography from a scholarly uh, uh, point of view. Yeah. Um, because I think, I think that book is very significant in McCullough's uh, uh, studies. And not only that, I think it calls into question how biography, not just in McCullough's, but how biography uh, is being practiced uh, by biographical scholars. So I think that mm-hmm. book in the long run is going to be considered a very significant piece of uh, scholarship on McCullers, and I know that she has spent some time there at the McCullers Center in the mm-hmm. Smith McCullers uh, uh, house, and it was mm-hmm. instrumental in her thinking. Um, uh, so I think it's interesting that the McCullers Center has played such a, a vital part in the creation of this work that I think is going to be really important uh, for future McCullers uh, studies. Yeah, it's interesting reading it because, uh, you know, the, 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 where she talks about, you know, taking a bath for instance, and some of the things she does in the house, you know, having spent so much time in the house, I can uh, imagine all of this stuff uh, very well. Well, one of the things about that, and it's, it is one of the things I wanted to ask you about that I think is interesting, is um, I, I, I wonder about her saying, for instance, when she's at an event at uh, the McKellar Center that we had at the house, that uh, one of my former students, actually, that fellow that she mentions is one of my former students and, and a friend of mine. Uh, says that you know the the people in this town don't want to admit um, that Carson was uh, gay, lesbian, whatever word you want to use, um, and I think that uh, Jen Chaplin agreed with that assessment. And I, my own assessment is that in fact the people in Columbus who are admirers of Carson McCullers are proud. That's one of the reasons that they're proud of her. Is that she had the courage to and and the and the talent or whatever you want to call it to depict uh, the fluidity of sexual orientation and gender 
um, so well. Um, and it's in fact the 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 people who don't like Carson McCullers, and as you well know, there are a lot of them in Columbus, Georgia, who don't like her, who are the ones who want to put those labels on her because it's a way for them to dismiss her. Oh, she's just a fag. She's yeah, just, you know, right. whatever. I mean, yeah. I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Um, as I get older, uh, my relationship with my parents uh, uh, sort of still continues to haunt me in a way. But what I realized not that many years uh, ago was that the parents in my mind, the parents that I struggled with during adolescence, the parents that I struggled with when I was, was growing up, are not the my parents who are still alive today. Hmm. Uh, that they're vulnerable and they're you know they they have changed dramatically during my lifetime as well. It's not as if my parents froze in time. And so when I think about Carson in relation to Columbus, I think the same way that the Columbus today and the people who appreciate her uh, for whatever reason in Columbus today, that's not the same Columbus that Carson uh, grew up in. The South has changed yeah. considerably. Columbus has changed considerably. I still think you know Columbus has a long way. Uh, Georgia, the South, still yeah. have a long way uh, to go in in uh, many aspects. But it's not the same place that Carson both felt compelled to flee uh, mm-hmm. when she was uh, so young because she didn't feel comfortable there and didn't feel accepted or, or or wanted there. But I think we're well down the road toward the place changing to become more amenable to her. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, there are people that are still uh, antagonistic toward her for many reasons, uh, not just her sexuality or, or uh, uh, thoughts regarding, uh, regarding gender, but it's far more accepting uh, than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, not to mention when Carson was, uh, was still alive. And so yeah. Columbus has come uh, a long way. Even when I was living in Columbus, Columbus has changed dramatically since I lived there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Columbus is maybe step by step catching up uh, with their daughter. Uh, <laughs> and eventually it may become uh, a place that she would have been more than happy to have been born and raised and never left. She yeah. might not feel compelled to uh, flee to New York uh, if she was growing up there today. I don't know. Uh, that's not for me uh, yeah. uh, to say. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, you know, I, I feel sometimes like the whole world is catching up to Carson McCullers. That's right. You know, the way that she depicts some of these things. And again, uh, establishing that it's never a toggle. It's always a sliding scale. You know, I think to me, that's one of the things that that I take away from the work. And I feel like the world is coming around to that position on everything, gender, sexual orientation, um, racism, you know. Um, And Carson McCullers was already there. Yeah. Uh, One one word that we haven't said uh, today that I think is really important in reading McCullough's work now, and maybe the sort of next phase of reading her work will sort of embrace this, is the idea of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And that The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is a brilliant example of a writer looking at how all these different difficulties, labor relations regarding uh, uh, Jake Blunt, disability mm-hmm. regarding uh, uh, John Singer and Antonopoulos, um, an adolescent struggling, struggling with sexual, sexual and gender identity, and an African-American doctor struggling with racism at the time, how all of those come down to the same root, you know, and then there, mm-hmm. there's this instant intersectionality about what McCullers was concerned about in that novel. And that's what makes it wildly relevant uh, today. That novel, I think more than any of her, her others, 
is the most current and the one that uh, yeah. people get the most from uh, reading today because it really feels like she was anticipating this sort of intersectional concern regarding the origins of racism and you know class disparity and uh, income disparity and and uh, sexuality and gender. She was anticipating that uh, 80 years ago. Amen. Yep, I think you're exactly right. Uh, let's leave it there then, shall we? Okay. But okay. Uh, thanks so much for doing it, and good luck with uh, your your work. And uh, I hope to see you sometime again soon in the near future. Yes, I'm not sure when that will be. You know, I was supposed to be. I have a novel coming out in a few weeks. Congratulations. I Thanks. Yeah. I was supposed to be having a tour, you know, of the South uh, this summer doing right. readings, and stuff, but obviously that's not going to happen. So maybe yeah. at some point. But look for social media stuff about the novel uh, as well. Okay, will do. Will do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCuller Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at McCullerCenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullough's 100th birthday on February 19, 2017. I'm Ryan Worley, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Additional music used during today's reading was called Funeral Music for Queen Mary, written by Stephen Stuckey. It was performed by the Schwobwind Ensemble on November 16th of 2018 in Legacy Hall, under the direction of Dr. Jamie Nix, courtesy of the Schwob School of Music. <laughs>